From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. Mark, I had no idea about this very special moment for us, but we've made 30 episodes of The Envelope. Can you believe that? No. I like I saw this number floated by and I started counting in my head. I was like, what? That doesn't sound right. And I, on the one hand, it seems like we've done like, I don't know, five to 10. On the other hand, it feels like we've done 100. So like maybe like I have in some ways 30 sounds reasonable. I'm trying to remember who was the first interview I did for this one. Well, I think it's tough because you were doing Can't Stop Watching. I was doing The Real. And then we sort of Wonder Twins joined forces so I can't, I think neither one of us feel like we really started this project so much as we rolled into it from other projects. Yeah, it's all coming back to me because I very specifically remember being horrified by my first one, which was Anya Taylor-Joy. And that was because my upstairs neighbor, well, my upstairs neighbors were really enjoying themselves. It could be heard. So how about you? Who was yours? Was it Andy? Sandberg? That sounds about right. That pro- that was definitely early in this process. I had no such <laughs> issues uh, with my neighbors at that point. We've come a long way. You're taking back the mic this week. Who are you talking to? Uh, I'm talking with actor John Boyega. People probably know him best from his role as a stormtrooper turned resistance fighter in the recent Star Wars trilogy. But he also just won a Golden Globe Award for his role as police officer Leroy Logan in Red, White and Blue, one part of Steve McQueen's Small Axe anthology series. And he also in just the last year or so has really been using his platform to speak out about injustice, racism, police brutality things that he sees both in sort of the entertainment industry, both in Hollywood and the UK, and also in the in the world at large. So to speak out about the family, specifically about the Black family, which is something that I find very, very important. I was raised to be pro-Black, and with that comes a, a responsibility in how you manage your family. And so for me, in, in having those discussions prior to the protest and being given a chance to express myself on that and for that to be um, accepted by by most people anyway, uh, was was something that was quite important to me. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, and, and I'm sorry if I say things like this often, I was at the world premiere of John Boyega's first film, Attack the Block, at South by Southwest in 2011, 10 years ago now. And, I mean, he just jumped right off the screen as someone who was so charismatic and had such screen presence. But to see the transformation he's undergone in just the last couple of years, the way he's grown and matured and is so confident and speaking out, him as an actor is not that surprising. What he's been going through personally has been something that's really, I think, impressive to see him do that in public. Yeah, I mean, I know when that happened, everyone was talking about, you know, how poignant it was and just seeing like the work that he's been doing within the roles that he's playing to sort of address these issues as well is is quite something. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Mark's conversation with John is coming up after this quick break. This week's episode is brought to you by Showtime's critically acclaimed limited series, The Good Lord Bird, which stars Oscar nominee Ethan Hawke as fiery abolitionist John Brown. 
based on the National Book Award-winning novel by James McBride, The Good Lord Bird weaves a humorous, dramatic, and historical tapestry of pre-Civil War America. Critics have hailed the Peabody-nominated program as one of the best miniseries in an era of great miniseries, and praised Hawk's truly remarkable and career-high performance. Emmy voters, please consider The Good Lord Bird for Outstanding Limited Series and Ethan Hawke for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Limited Series. This week's episode is brought to you by Showtime's hit limited series, Your Honor, starring Oscar nominee and Emmy winner Brian Cranston. Cranston gives a riveting performance as Michael Desiato, a respected New Orleans judge whose teenage son is involved in a hit and run that leads to a high-stakes game of lies, deceit, and impossible choices. Critics hail Cranston as one of the best actors alive and the series as a grand acting showcase. Emmy voters, please consider Your Honor for Outstanding Limited Series and Brian Cranston for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Limited Series. Welcome back to The Envelope. Here's Mark's conversation with actor John Boyega. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, mate. And now the the Small Axe Project, five separate films, all directed by Steve McQueen, set among the West Indian community of London in the 1970s and 80s. Those films, they don't specifically connect and they don't share characters, but there's something about them. They do add up. And I'm wondering, as the star of one of those films, Red, White, and Blue, were you aware of the larger project? Did Steve McQueen sort of share with you what the whole project was about? Yeah, no, definitely. This first ever meeting I had with Steve, he actually explained to me what the format of these projects is going to be because I was confused. I was like, okay, is this a TV series or these, is this films? He was like, oh, it's a, it's a series of films. I was just like, oh, okay, cool. So um, we're going to do a bunch of films that are related to each other that are in a kind of a group that have the influence, are based in and around the same time, but touch these various different issues. And once he explained to me why he wanted to do it, the kind of gap he wanted to fill with these projects, I was all down for it. I was 100% down for this new way of kind of telling stories. And did it feel like something new to you? Yeah, it definitely felt new and fresh. And today, Steve has spoken openly about projects like this that haven't seen the light of day. And to be able to give these kind of stories, you know, a good chance to get elevation and and awareness is, is a great thing. So I was happy to be a part of it. Because I've heard you say that you like to be in films that you yourself would want to watch. And so I'm curious to know what it was like for you to see all five of the films, to see the whole project for the first time. Oh, no, it was amazing. I love the entertainment factor. I love the difference in all the stories. The intensity of one could be replaced with an enjoyable moment in the other. You know, I love the the celebration, the culture, the food. I think those aesthetics brings it all together and those little, those little um, moments and ideas. But just watching all of them, yeah, that, you know, this is the kind of stuff I'd, I'd definitely watch. Uh, but to be involved in it in another film was also kind of cool in, in a strange way because all of a sudden I was like, oh, there I am. I'm also a part of this this uh, series of films. And now the, the character you play, Leroy Logan, had you ever heard of him before the project came to you? No, not specifically, but I knew a, a lot about his work. The funny thing, when we met each other for the first time for our first initial meet, he actually recognized one of my friends who he had done a lot of youth group and, 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 and youth work with her. She actually had been one of his students. So um, 
from then when we started talking, we we found that we actually had a lot of relations. Like we we know a lot of people, we have a lot of mutual friends and we have worked with a lot of the youth groups and extracurricular activity, drama clubs that he has also been involved in. So I don't, I didn't know of him. When we started speaking, our worlds are, are very much close in that sense. So it, it was it was cool to know that. And then in meeting him and talking with him, what do you as a performer take away from that? Is it like a mannerism, a style of speaking, or is it more like his kind of worldview and just way of being in the world? Well, for me, it's the combination of all of that. Definitely mannerism and speaking. He, he actually acted quite older when he was younger. So he's always had this kind of old man soul, you know, and a kind of wisdom about him. And his mannerisms as well was something that I wanted to pick up in, in this performance. And then it was just like the thoughts behind his decisions, like the intentions and the motivations behind it. So that when I'm playing these scenes of silence, you know, I have factual thoughts from Leroy himself that helps guide, you know, the scenes in that. Because there are sort of two stories at play in Red, White and Blue. One is the story of Leroy Logan joining the police force as a black man on the majority white you know, police department and, and what that was like. But then also the story of his relationship with his father and about the two of them coming to sort of a point of reconciliation between the two of them. And for you, were those separate stories or or how do you see those two sort of halves of the film interrelating? I think they're intertwined in everything because, you know, before you leave to go and pursue your own wants and needs in life, you a father's blessing always helps, <laughs> a father's support. And what happens when you don't have that? What happens when your life choices are in direct conflict with, you know, the love that you have for your father? So I think there's definitely lines that intertwined in terms of that narrative. But I think also um, myself, Steve and Stephen, we all spoke about our relationship with our dads growing up, the conflicts of that, uh, the moments of understanding, you know, when your dad finally lets you go because they trust you now to be on your own two feet. You know, these are all big moments for, for men. And to have that um, kind of like just colored into this was was great. And it was also amazing to play. Because one of my favorite moments in, in the film is when your father, played by Steve Toussaint, drives you to the police academy, sort of drops you off as you're beginning your role as a police officer. And I mean, we hear Al Green's version of How Do You Mend a Broken Heart? The two of you get out of the car and you have this moment that, we don't hear what you're saying, but we see the two of you talk. We see the two of you embrace. What was that scene like to film? Like, were you exchanging dialogue? Like, did you know it was going to play out with just the the music? What's funny? We we knew it was going to play. I didn't I didn't really visualize it to go down in that way. I knew the music would be playing. It felt all too natural for me. It kind of made me feel like you know the first time my dad ever you know dropped me at the airport to go to LA. You know, it's that kind of. There's a lot I should be saying to you right now, son, but I don't even have the words to quantify. But then also is that mutual understanding of dad, I understand. I'm a man now too. So I get, I get how you feel. And I'm not even going to bother. You don't need to do a monologue today. I get it. Like it was that kind of energy, which I've experienced in real life with my dad, where it's kind of like, you know, let's skip the monologues, man, you know, and we're just having this very raw, honest moment. And it doesn't need to be words, but you know that your dad's sorry, you know. Sometimes something happens and your dad just comes in and he goes, uh, what do you want to eat? And it's after a big argument, you know, you're just like, what do you want to eat? And you're like, oh, well, I'll have that. And your dad just goes, okay, cool. That doesn't mean what do you want to eat? That's like, I apologize for everything that happened and blah, blah, blah. But you know, in, th- in these kind of dynamics, you know, those are kind of centered in more to an emotional, internal kind of perspective rather than it being kind of like verbal. 
So it was, it was amazing to play that, man. I loved it. It just felt like I was in a natural space. But to to show that side, that vulnerability was 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 great. There's a number of moments in the the film where you have these lines once Leroy is on the police force and one of them is he says I'm I'm here to bring change to the organization from the inside out another time he says someone's got to be the bridge and when you're doing that you realize you're alone and I couldn't help but wonder for you what did those lines mean to you and did they in any way reflect your own feelings about yourself your place in the film industry in the in the UK and in Hollywood I think so I think as you're as you're learning you know your place means more than you think it does I mean I think the difference is, is that Leroy went into the police force knowing this. When I joined the industry, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really know about all these politics and stuff. I thought acting was as fun as it's going to get in terms of a a job. You get into the realm and you know that these characters, the performances, the stories mean a lot to people that invokes like real emotion, both positive and negative. You know, that's a lot to manoeuvre, especially at a time where a lot of people speak about representation in terms of your race and your your position. I mean, I can understand that, but I think for Leroy, it is, you know, a hundred times much more of a, of a difficult situation because his job is in direct influence of the actual infrastructure of, of our countries. Like policing is like a big and important thing in relation to infrastructure, in relation to systems and what systems we're comfortable with. Um, so to try and change that, Something that directs people every day for me is, you know, you don't even have the time to breathe as a police officer. Whereas I feel as an actor, um, you can definitely take more of a slow burn. You know, you're establishing what that means. You know, most times, most of us that has found um, anything controversial in acting, you know, I was like, how can actors be controversial? They're faking the whole thing anyway. And we know it. We kind of know the deal, right? When we're going into the, into the theater. But with, with policing, like, you don't have that slow burn. I'm sure Leroy had to figure it out that this is the system, this is what to expect, and know what to expect, and then I'm going to have to try and maneuver it. Whether thankfully with acting, I, I guess um, maybe there's much more of a slow realization of the challenges you probably will face. Because your character is holding so much inside through so much of the film, and then it all sort of comes out in this one scene where after he's been left in harm's way by some fellow officers, he sort of lets them have it and, and speaks to them in this scene. It takes place in a rec room where they're all playing pool or, or snooker. And I've heard you actually refer to that scene as therapy. And how so? What did, what did that scene mean to you? Because I think at the time there was a lot of um, intensity. Well, there still is. But, you know, at the time it was like the crescendo of, of the George Floyd situation. There was a lot of debates going back and forth online. And it's kind of like, you know, you just get to a, a certain point where you, you definitely get frustrated. You get frustrated with the fact that, you know, you feel like you have a clear enough, honest message. You know that it's coming from somewhere that's genuine. You even want people to try and find out if you're genuine or not so that you can just spend half of your time fixating on the issue rather than fixating on your dynamic with the people who are supposed to either be supporting you. And that becomes frustrating. You know, that's very, very frustrating for me. You know, saying one thing and then it's got like nine different meanings and, you know, it not meaning exactly the truth that you're coming from. Navigating that is, is definitely something that, you know, can be very, very tricky. And, and I did, you know, come on set with a lot of that frustration because I couldn't walk around the street and just punch someone in the face. And everyone I meet, most people anyway, they're quite nice. So nobody gives me a reason to. 
playing the role was 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 great was a great way of of just releasing that anger and, and releasing that frustration with the the current kind of like topic or the way the the discussion surrounding race relations at the time were going and it was just too too messy for me because last summer you spoke at a Justice for Black Lives protest in London and I had a chance to interview Steve McQueen about small acts and he said that actually that scene, that rec room scene, was shot just after you had given that speech. And so I'm I'm wondering for you, what was the inner relationship between this role of, of Leroy and yourself, this role in the, the world? I, I can't imagine you would have expected for those two things to become intertwined in the way that they did. Yeah, I mean, well, of course not, definitely. I just think um, that it's a strange way, the way sometimes reality and art can you know, spark these kind of conversations. But what was funny, Leroy as a character was already dis- established before that. So in coming back, you know, the relationship between those two those two things, you know, I just think that's what naturally happens with life sometimes. It just depends what you're about in your personal life. It just added up and lined up in a way that we could have never tracked. So when I came back on set, Steve was kind of like, this is crazy. Like, we're making something to do with this topic. And just so recently, you know, you, you've just been in a position you know, speaking out on the, on these on these issues. So for me, it was just a, you know, it was it's still strange that that kind of happened around the same time. You know, definitely did. It wasn't me. I didn't control that shit. But you know, that's just how it went down. And then I I have to just ask you about your speech at at that protest. It was so moving, and it became very much something that was shared a lot online. It was seen by so many people. You know, so far beyond who was there present at that protest. That day, what is what has it meant to you in the moment when you were speaking so passionately and so emotionally, and then what has it meant to you to know that those words have kind of resonated so far beyond? It means a lot because I wasn't just speaking to people. I guess you can call that moment self therapy as well because I was speaking to myself. You know, speaking to myself too. And I think a lot of what I spoke about on that day was the power of the individual choice and how we. We kind of need to, um, I'm not saying get back to that, but we need to shine more light on on the power of the individual and what we can do when we join up and, and when we set up families that make sense, family dynamics, we have more discipline with our choices, not buttering every single thing that we do as a uh, lesson to be learned or, you know, something I had to go through. It's kind of like, okay, how do we have a more preemptive mentality to help, you know, navigate through these issues that are very, very stressful? So to speak out, about the family, specifically about the black family, which is something that I find very, very important. I was raised to be pro-black. And with that comes a, a responsibility in how you manage your family. And so for me, in, in having those discussions prior to the protest and being given a chance to express myself on that and for that to be um, accepted by by most people anyway, uh, was, was something that was quite important to me. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, we, we can talk about these things in a generalized sense in accordance to the masses, but when you go home, it's you and your decisions, you know. And I feel like at the height of, of all that was going down was kind of like, okay, cool, we we need to remember the foundational decisions, you know, the the family-oriented decisions that influence a lot of these scenarios and situations that were were debating over or were crying about situations we're having a real extreme negative emotional reaction to. So I just wanted to express myself based on how I was feeling. And I guess after that, I mean, I saw helicopters and shit flying around. I was like, oh yeah, they're probably going to get that on the news. But I, I, I never would have imagined it to, to spread that far like that, to be fair. Black lives have always mattered. We have always been important. We have always meant something. We have always succeeded. And now is the time. I ain't waiting. I ain't waiting. I need you to understand how painful it is. 
And that isn't the case anymore. That is never the case anymore. We are going to try today. We are a physical representation of our support for George Floyd. Had you planned on speaking that day? No, no. And, and what's funny, it wasn't even um, a Black Lives Matter protest. Everyone always says it's a Black Lives Matter protest. It was actually a, a protest for a charity called Justice for Black Lives. And they were there specifically, obviously, um, in support of George Floyd and um, the various other issues in, in relation to police brutality. But they were also there for individuals like Belly Majinga, individuals who died during the height of the pandemic and cases that had a negative uh, racial element to it. A lot of people came down, even her family came down. So we were waiting for Belly Majinga's family. And while we were waiting for her family, you know, one of the ladies that works with the charity was just kind of like, because I had my mask up and I'd been protesting for like three hours or so prior to the speech. And so she was like, you know what, we're still waiting for Belly Majinga's family. And you know how a protest goes, especially when they're warming up to travel and stuff. It could be really hard to keep the energy and to keep everybody on the same page. So they were like, if you would like to say a few words, I just felt like I was going to say hello to everyone kind of thing and just saying, you know, let's just keep it going. Let's just keep it up. You know, I'm here. There's a few other people here, but all the same. That's what that was kind of like what was in my head before I got up. You know, I was just going to say hi. I hope you guys are good. We're all here for the same cause. Let's just keep on target. We'll protest for the next few hours. And then hopefully our voices are heard kind of thing. But then, you know, when I stood up and I saw all those faces and the energy, it was just it was just different. I was just like, ah, you know what? Let me just say what's really on my mind still. More of Mark's conversation with John is coming up next. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Showtime's critically acclaimed limited series, The Good Lord Bird, which stars Oscar nominee Ethan Hawke as fiery abolitionist John Brown. Based on the National Book Award-winning novel by James McBride, The Good Lord Bird is told by the point of view of Onion, played by Joshua Caleb Johnson, a fictional enslaved boy who becomes a member of Brown's ragtag team of abolitionist soldiers. Critics have hailed the Peabody-nominated The Good Lord Bird as one of the best miniseries in an era of great miniseries and praised Hawk's truly remarkable and career-high performance. Emmy voters, please consider The Good Lord Bird for Outstanding Limited Series, Ethan Hawke for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Limited Series, and David Diggs and Joshua Caleb Johnson for Outstanding Supporting Actors in a Limited Series. To watch episodes and learn more about The Good Lord Bird, visit Showtime.com. Welcome back to The Envelope. Here's the rest of Mark's conversation with John Boyega. He plays a police officer named Leroy Logan in Red, White, and Blue, which is part of Steve McQueen's Small Acts anthology series. 2020 seemed like such a transformative year for you. There was the speech that you gave at the protest. You also pulled away from an endorsement deal when you had been erased from the Chinese version of a campaign that you had helped designed, and you also spoke out about the way you were treated during the Star Wars films, both for your character on screen and you personally in promoting those films. What changed for you? Do, do you do you feel like something happened for you in, in 2020? Um, yeah, but I mean, I don't know what changed. You know, I don't think it was even 2020. It probably sparked off from 2018. <laughs> I think, you know, as you grow and, and learn, I've been in active work with 
the community for a while. I'm from the community. I was born and raised in the community. I'm from South. Like that's, it's a part of my life. You don't, you don't make money and just, you know, move away. You know, you, you, they still got my ingredients there, got my peoples there, that some of my peoples that live there. So that's still a part of your life. And I guess um, in having those experiences, you, you form really hardcore reactions to, to certain kind of uh, treatment. And I guess in an in a industry where it's like, you know, un, until, you know, there was that one brave person to sometimes speak on something, then, you know, the energy, that spirit of, of braveness can go to another. And then somebody else starts to speak and then another person starts to speak. And I just felt like, you know, I just had to say, I just had to say something. I just had to say it how it is. I was sick and tired of, I guess it got to the point I was walking on the streets. That's what it was. I remember I was walking somewhere and this random dude, white guy, pulled me to the side and was just like, <laughs> it goes, man, I love all the work you did, man. I love everything you've been doing. But he goes, man, you don't feel for a second you were done dirty with the way your role was played out. And it's kind of like when I had that moment of like, ah, oh, shit. Everyone knows. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'd, I'd go into events and I'd go to like industry events and industry people would be like, yeah, um, we got to get you something good, man. You're just, you know, they're just, <laughs> it was just that kind of, those reactions just really helped me to be like, okay, cool. I need to speak out on this because it, it, it can sometimes um, harm you, right? It can come across in, a, in another type of way if you don't clarify these kind of these kind of moments and un unfortunate things that happen. So, you know, I'm glad it was, you know, I had a chance to just be honest, really. Because in particular, now that you've finished with the, the Star Wars films, do you feel free in the sense of, you know, you have probably a lot of options and what you can do with your career, but then also it seems like you're feeling a certain responsibility that the platform that you do have that you want to make the the most of it it's a mixture of things but it, it doesn't always come from the strategic thought of a platform and all that kind of stuff sometimes just because you're pissed off like sick and tired of being in certain scenarios and situations but then you know it's scary to express express on it because then it's easy for people to see you as a liar to see you as somebody who's wants in energy to be focused on themselves but then you think about a lot of these big social issues. If that one person doesn't express about their own individual situation, how do we then have a conversation that is guided by real nuance? Like, so we can have the conversation the right way. And for me, that's something that, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out as you, as you go along this industry because you never want to come across as, as difficult and you never want to come across as an asshole. But what I've learned is that, man, fuck it, man. You got to say what the fuck you got to say because. Most times, a lot of these people in positions that are not as um, egotistical from the outside in, they're the biggest ass assholes out here. Like, they're the biggest ones. You know, they you know, may not be in flashy jewelry and have all the designer clothes, but they are still assholes. But as an actor, because of the evident privilege and you're an actor, it's hard for you to talk about things that rob you the wrong way and that has negatively affected you without people saying, oh, shut up, man, you're an actor, enjoy your money and have fun. So I guess in maneuvering that kind of comprehension, I need—I just needed to, to figure that out. But I, I can't lie, it worked. You know, a lot more people in the industry are now talking about it openly too. And I, and I, and I love it. I think it's, it's, it's good when now it's not an elephant in the room. But then as an actor, you're in some ways at the mercy of the roles that you're offered or that are out there. Is it difficult to sort of take that energy forward in your career? No, no. I just found that I, I, I perhaps you need to find your allies in, in this industry. 
A lot of people, when they speak of Hollywood, there's always this very limited perspective on Hollywood, not knowing that a lot of people from, you know, the working class come to Hollywood and find jobs. A lot of people that don't have academic brilliance find a future in entertainment, you know, so you don't always get that kind of like uppity privileged background that comes into industry. And when you consider that, you find allies, you find people that believe the same things you fucking do, but they're just in entertainment. They're in the industry. They're, you know, they're there with you. They're not Hollywood. They, you know, were raised in a probably sometimes another state or another area in LA, you know, moved into town, hustled very, very hard to get what they have. And I've managed to meet those kind of people within industry. You look at Jewel Taylor that I just worked with, with on They Clone Tyrone, who has that kind of grounded upbringing, both creatively, both in real life as well. Um, you have to find your allies, man. You have to find people who are creatively on the same page. And, and that's what I've been doing. And I found that before in fear, you know, I didn't know how many people were of this kind of my mindset. But now I've spoken up about it, wherever I go, kind of like they they kind of reveal themselves and say, hey, man, like, you know, I loved, you know, what you said, or I, I, I love what you're about, love your mentality, or I want to learn more. Or sometimes I've got, I didn't agree, let's have a conversation about it. I've had great, re, you know, responses as a whole to this, you know, and, and it just feels good to be able to have, I'll be able to still meet people within industry moving forward that don't live up to the stereotypes of, of, of Hollywood mentality. And now 2021 is also the 10th anniversary of the movie Attack the Block, your first film. And after all that you've been through in your career since then, what does that bring to mind for you? What do you, what do you think about now when you look back on Attack the Block? Just think about how much you're always going to be learning in this game. That's why, that's why, you know, not a realization, but maybe a realization again. You know, you're always going to be learning in this game. When I think back with Attack the Block, I was so determined on what I wanted to do and I had all sorts of plans and, you know, a lot of those plans worked out, but it just reminds me of the journey, the, the the importance of being humble for its true definition. You know, for me, humility isn't adding an extra spice to your thank you. You know, humility is, is about knowing where, you know, how far you still have to go, how far you still have to grow. And it, and in thinking 10 years after Attack the Block, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm God give me the days. I'm still around. I, I can't wait for the next 10 years to see what that growth is like, you know. But it's really, really cool to just see that, wow, you know, 10 years. I've done a whole decade in this now. <laughs> just the last thing I want to ask you, John, is that, you know, as people have been having to spend so much time at home over the past, you know, year or 15 months, they've been watching a lot of things. And I'm, I'm wondering for you, is there anything that you've watched that has really spoken to you or that you would want to recommend for other people to take a look at? Ooh, I wish I would have thought of this more, but I'm like, I'm watching, I'm watching cool shit right now. I can't lie. I'm watching like <laughs> Invincible, like the animated series on, on Amazon, the Invincible series. I'm watching that. I just finished watching them, another Amazon series with uh, Ashley Thomas, mm -hmm. AKA Bashi from the UK. Does incredible in that role. Um, I'm getting onto Snowfall 2 that stars Damson Idris. I'm getting onto that because that show has just been, you know, everybody's been talking about that show. So I've been, I'm starting that up. You know, a few little bits here and there. I've just been, as, as at the time I get to watch TV, I just try to watch something that is either going to be a real good first two episodes or a good feature film that's just going to pull me in automatically. So I, I saw Mortal Kombat the other day and I saw, just been seeing a whole bunch of stuff. Well, fantastic, John. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. No, thank you. Much appreciated. 
You know, Mark, John has been like part of these really giant sort of special effect films in recent years. For me, watching Small Axe, it was nice to see him come back to like a really human story. What was your takeaway from that conversation? Yeah, I mean, that he just is so serious in his intention that, you know, he's moving into producing more now that, I mean, what he's doing is really purposeful. And then I think, you know, Red, White and Blue is an important project for him and his development as an actor and sort of as a persona. And it really, I think, is, you know, probably his best performance to date. He's just, it's so deeply felt and it's that that performance is so rich. It's just really exciting to to see. Yeah, the whole uh, series, Small Acts, was there were stunning performances that really took your breath away. It really did make me feel like I was watching a film in a way that is different because it really commanded my attention in a different way. I was sort of forced not to look at the phone because if you miss something, you're missing something like vital to the storytelling I feel like I haven't watched much TV lately. <laughs> what have you watched? Well, as we're talking, I just watched the finale of Hacks. Oh, the yes. Last two episodes just screened. And I mean, I've really enjoyed that show. And I think those last two episodes were so emotional in a way that I was not really expecting. And it's funny you know, continuing the conversation about like TV versus a movie, you could see the ways that they were like, the show just got announced for having a season two, which is great. I'm excited. But it was interesting in the storytelling in those last couple episodes, you could really see them laying the groundwork for like what was going to be coming in another season. And there is a part of me that was also like fighting it a little bit because I was like, no, I want this story to like wrap up and conclude. I don't want like crumbs for more. But wait, Mark, why would you want anything, anything with Jean Smart to conclude. Anything with her needs to last until the end of time. It's Jean Smart. Well, remember, five weeks ago, we didn't have hacks yet. And so and so now there's like a whole new indelible Jean Smart performance. But there, you know, five weeks from now, we could get some other new character, some other story from her, with her, that is totally different and totally unexpected. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, more of the same. But she can do both. What are your thoughts? I think Vanity Fair has now deemed it the smartest I mean, I think that's hard to say because, I mean, when are you going to mark the start of that? I know. Do you know what I mean? Because she's been so good on so much for so long that it's more just like right. prestige folks started paying attention, media folks started paying attention, not so much that she wasn't working, wasn't doing stuff. We've always known, you and I. We've been on the pulse. We've been smart <laughs> about smart. That was such a dad joke. <laughs> I'm maturing. I will say, yes, I watched the Hacks finale. I watched the whole season. Epic. We've reached the point, and I know you're very excited to learn this. We've reached the point in Real Housewives of Beverly Hills where we're getting into the drama with Erica Girardi and her husband, Tom Girardi, the, you know, the attorney that has come under. I know this from reading about it in the LA Times. Yes. So the next episode, we'll really delve into it where she's filed for divorce. 
and we're going to sort of learn why is what I assume. So this is where things sort of kick into gear. So if you're interested in the sort of goings on of that scandal, you can just jump right in, Mark, and I can lead you along if you want. But I, I think it'll be pretty good. Before we talk about anything else, Yvonne, you just came out this week with another big story. This one about the recent television series, Selena, some of the backstage wranglings. You had some incredible reporting about it and then sort of building that out as part of our larger package on Latinos in Hollywood on what the sort of state of that is. Congratulations. And just another terrific story. Thank you. Does it does it all make sense why I've been like just a nervous wreck these past few weeks? Of course. When I set out to write this story, it was simply talking to TV writers about their experiences and learning about their sort of obstacles trying to move the needle, but also hearing what had them hopeful or what changes they wanted to see and how they were sort of taking action and not just waiting for it to happen. And in the course of that reporting is how I came to learn about what happened during the making of Selena. You know, I talked with some people that worked on the series about one, the sort of classification of it, which was not a secret um, that Netflix classified it as a Latin American original versus a U.S. original. And in turn, you know, the budget was smaller and there was some workarounds in terms of like what the pay was able to be negotiated at. You know, it's one thing to be paid less than what you're used to. But on top of that, they were dealing with a very aggressive work schedule, trying to turn around like two seasons worth of episodes in like a span of 20 weeks. The 20 weeks eventually got extended because they realized this can't be done. But, you know, it was like hearing from some of the people that worked on the series of what happened on Selena is illustrative of a lot of what's going wrong in Hollywood and how our stories are viewed and how they're classified and and how they're valued. And so it signaled a bigger problem. But now I have to ask you, like, some of that reporting felt very, like, inside of the making of Selena. What was it like for you as someone who had seen the show, had reported on the show, to kind of break through to this whole new trove of information about the making of that show? If you paid attention to the way viewers were reacting to the series or if you watched it yourself, I mean, it, it was very apparent that the budget was limited. And I think everyone had their suspicions just how limited. And, you know, through the course of my reporting for this project, which came out Sunday, you know, I was talking to showrunners just with the goal of understanding how they felt about where we were at with representation because... You know, the numbers say one thing. Anecdotally, it feels like there's movement. How are you really feeling about what's going on right now? And, you know, it was through the course of those discussions that I was hearing whispers about you should look into what happened there. You know, work like this can't happen without people coming forward. And it's really hard to come forward when it feels like your career is at stake. And so to those that shared their stories with me, I'm very thankful because I think that's the way you get people talking about what needs to change. And so let's see what happens from here. Well, it was powerful, powerful reporting. And, and, and I do hope that it had, I, th I can already see from the response that I think it's really going to have an impact. Yeah, I mean, that's the hope. Hopefully people read the rest of the package, which has a lot of great stories. So yeah, I think it's a great package. It's by no means the sort of, 
comprehensive package that it needs to be, but that's because the work is not done. So we'll see what happens from here. But my thing is, is like I, I've told you that I'm watching In the Heights this week. Were you able to watch a screener of that in a theater or did you watch at home? I saw it in Los Angeles's historic Chinese theater. I mean, as as big of a screen as you can get in the city, really. And it was just overwhelming. It was such a wonderful experience. I was. It was the sort of special preview screening as part of the Los Angeles Latino International Film Festival. And so the audience was very into it. I mean, it's funny because the movie itself is so good, but then the sort of the experience of seeing it with like a group of people, both for how joyous the movie can be, but also for how much people just want to be together right now. You're like, you've never been so excited to be in a room full of dirty strangers. <laughs> that movie, like, I think it really is like hitting at just the right moment. And it's gonna be interesting to see as the summer rolls along, if like movie after movie sort of has that same effect, you know, with like F9 coming up and Black Widow, like if people are just going to be super stoked movie after movie just to be in a theater with other people. But also, uh, sort of teasing an upcoming interview, I would say the movie Zola that's coming out is another one that would be great to see with a big audience simply because the reactions from an audience to that movie are so exciting that it's like watching it on your own at home is one thing, but seeing it with a bunch of other people is just next level. Well, speaking of, let's talk about who you've got next week in the interview chair because this is going to be the last episode of The Envelope before we take a short break. So tell us who you're talking to. Funny enough, I'm talking with Janixa Bravo, director and co-writer of Zola. You know, I, I've seen that movie a number of times now. I, I still find it endlessly fascinating, and there's so much to talk about. And Janixa is a fantastic interview. I would describe the movie as a dark comedy about uh, two women who become fast friends and things do not turn out as expected. That's the short answer. The longer answer is a black woman is seduced by a white woman and is lured into this road trip that is meant to be Uh, profitable and exciting and thrilling and she finds out she's actually being sold into sex slavery and the film is her journey getting out of that to make it back home. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our producer is Asal Asanapur and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Mike for making our theme song and to Haley Ott for letting us run some of the footage she captured of John Boyega protesting last summer. As always, thanks for listening and see you next week. 